Six. I sent a letter to my love, and on the way I dropped it. A little puppy picked it up and put it in his pocket. It isn't you. It isn't you. But it is you. Sky is boredom. That was the thing I had hated the most about it, back when I'd been a slave. It is a massive palace, each spire of which could house a village. Its chambers contain dozens of entertainments. All of these become tedious to the point of torment after 2,000 years. Hells after 20. It was quickly becoming obvious that I would not be able to endure Sky for much longer, which was fine. I needed to be out in the world anyhow, searching for the means to cure myself, if such a thing existed in the mortal realm. But Sky was a necessary staging ground for my efforts at life, allowing me relative safety and comfort in which to consider important logistical questions. Where would I live when I left? How would I live if my magic would soon desert me? I had no resources, no particular skills, no connections in mortal society. The mortal realm could be dangerous, especially given my new vulnerability. I needed a plan to face it. The irony of my situation did not escape me. It was the nature of all mortal adolescents to experience such anxiety at the prospect of leaving their childhood home for the harsh adult world. Knowing this did not make me feel better. I had come to no conclusion by the afternoon, but since I guessed that Shahar might have gotten over her fury with me by this point, I went in search of her. When I walked into Shahar's quarters, I found her surrounded by three servants who seemed to be in the middle of dressing her. As I appeared in the parlor doorway, she turned around so fast that her half-done hair whipped loose. I saw a flash of dismay cross one servant's face before the woman masked it. Where in the infinite hells have you been? Shahar demanded as I leaned against the door jamb. The servant said you left the cupola hours ago. Good to see you too, I drawled. What are you getting all polished up for? She sighed, submitting once again to the servant's attentions. Dinner. I'm meeting with Lady Hino of the Timid Protectorate's ruling triadesy and her Pimex. She pronounced the word perfectly, which was fitting, as she'd probably been taught to speak Timon since childhood. The word meant something like air, though with a masculine suffix. Prince, then, in Amon parlance, though unless the Timmons had rewritten their charter again in the centuries since I'd last paid attention to them, it was not a hereditary role. They chose their leaders from among their brighter young folk, then trained them for a decade or so before actually letting them be in charge of anything. That sort of sensible thinking was why I'd chosen the Timmons as my model, back when I'd first crafted a mortal appearance for myself. Then I noticed the gown they were wrapping around Shahar, quite literally. The gown seemed to consist of bands of subdued gold cloth, palm-wide, being woven over and under other bands until a herringbone pattern had been achieved. The overall effect was very elegant and cleverly emphasized Shahar's still-developing curves. I whistled, and she threw a wary look at me. If I didn't know any better, I said, I would think you were courting this prince. But you're too young, and since when have Aramary married foreigners? So this must be something else. She shrugged, 
turning to gaze at herself in the bedroom mirror. The dress was almost done. They needed to wrap only the bottom few layers around her legs. But how was she going to get out of the thing? Perhaps they would cut it off her. The triadic likes beauty, she said. And she controls the tariffs on shipping from High North, so it's worthwhile to impress her. She's one of the few nobles who can actually make things difficult for us. She turned to the side, inspecting her profile. Now that the servant had repaired her hair, she looked perfect and knew it. And Prince Kenru is an old childhood friend, so I don't mind looking nice for him. I raised my eyebrows in surprise. Aramary didn't usually let their children have friends. Though I supposed friends were necessary, now that they had no gods. I went over to the parlor's couch and flopped onto it, not caring about the servant's glances. So your dinner will be business and pleasure, then? Mostly business. The servants murmured something, and there was a pause as Shahar examined herself. Satisfied, she nodded, and the servants filed out. Once they were gone, Shahar slid on a pair of long, pale yellow gloves. I mean to ask her about what happened to my cousins, in fact. I rolled onto my side to watch her. Why would she know? Because the Timmons are a part of a neutral group in the Nobles Consortium. They support us, but they also support progressive efforts like a revised tithe system and secular schools. The Order of Tempest can no longer afford to educate children beyond the age of nine, you see. Yes, yes, I said, rubbing my eyes. I don't care about the details, Shahar. Just tell me the important part. She sighed in exasperation, coming over to the couch to gaze haughtily at me. I believe Heino has alliances with those high northern nobles who consistently vote against the interests of the Aramary and the Consortium, she said. And they, I believe, are the source of the attacks on my family. If you think that, then why haven't you killed them? Not even a handful of generations ago, her forebears would have done it already. Because we don't know which nations are involved. The core of it is in High North. That much we're certain of. But that still encompasses two dozen nations, and I suspect some involvement by Sinmite nations as well, and even some of the islands. She sighed, putting her hands on her hips and frowning in consternation. I want the head of this snake, Sia, not just its fangs or scales. So I'm taking your advice and issuing a challenge. I'm going to tell them to kill me before I assume leadership of the family, or I will destroy the whole of High North to deal with the threat. I rocked back, duly impressed, though a knot of cold anger tightened in my stomach as well. I see. I assume you're bluffing in order to lure them out into the open. Of course I am. I'm not even certain we can destroy a continent anymore, and the attempt would certainly exhaust the Scrivener Corps. Weakening ourselves at a time like this would be foolish. Looking pleased with herself, Shahar sat down beside me. Her dress made a pleasant harmony of sounds as it flexed with her body, a carefully designed effect of its peculiar construction. It probably cost the treasury of a small nation. Still, I've spoken with Captain Rath, and we will coordinate an operation that can put on a suitably threatening display. So you won't use your ancestors' methods, I snapped, because you still want to be a good Aramary, 
but you're not above using their reputation to advance your goals. Do I have that right? She stared at me, startled into momentary silence. What? I sat up. You threaten people with genocide, and then you wonder why they scheme against you. Really, Shahar? I thought you wanted to change things. Her face darkened at once. I would never actually do it, Sia. Gods, that would make me a monster. And what does it make you to threaten all that they know and love? She fell silent in confusion and growing anger, and I leaned close so that my breath would caress her cheek. A monster too cowardly to accept her own hideousness. Shahar went pale, though two flaring spots of color rose on her cheeks as fury warred with shock in her eyes. To her credit, however, she did not launch an immediate attack, and she did not move away from me. Her nostrils twitched. One of her hands tightened, then relaxed. She lifted her chin. Clearly, you aren't suggesting that I actually inflict some calamity on them, she said. Her voice was soft. What, then, do you suggest, trickster? Let them continue with these assassination attempts until every full blood is dead? Her expression tightened further. Never mind. I don't know why I'm even asking. You don't care whether any of us live or die. Why should I? I gestured around us at Sky. It's not as though there aren't plenty of Aramary. No, there aren't. Her temper broke with an almost palpable force. She shifted to her hands and knees, glowering. You've looked around this place, Sia. They tell me the Underpalace was full back in your day. They tell me there were once as many Aramary living abroad as there were here in Sky. And we could take our pick from among the best of the family to serve us. These days, we've actually been adopting people into the family who aren't related at all. Tell me what that means to you, O oh eldest of godlings. I frowned. What she was saying made no sense. Humans bred like rabbits. There had been thousands of Aramary in the days when I'd been a slave. But she was right. The underpalace should never have been empty. No mostly Marinay lowblood should have been able to rise to captain of the guard and Remeth had made it with her own brother. That had never happened in the old days. Incest, certainly, constantly, but never four children. Yet if Remeth, herself diluted in some hidden way, sought to concentrate the central family's strengths, the signs had been there since I'd first returned to Skye, but I hadn't seen them. I was so used to thinking of the Aramary as powerful and numerous, but in fact they were dwindling dying. Explain, I said, inexplicably troubled. Shahar's anger faded. She sat down again, her shoulders slumping. The targeting of high bloods is a recent thing, she said. But the attacks were happening for a long time before that. We just didn't notice until the problem became acute. Her expression grew sour. Low bloods, I guessed. Those Aramary least closely related to the central family, lacking in resources or social status to give them greater value to the family head. The servants, the guards, the expendable ones. Yes, she sighed. It started long ago, probably a few decades after you and the other Anifida broke free. All the collateral lines of the family, 
the ones we left free to manage businesses or simply bring in new blood. It was subtle at first. Children dying of odd diseases, young wives and husbands turning up infertile, accidents, natural disasters. The lines died out. We apportioned their estates to allies or resumed control of them ourselves. I was already shaking my head. No, accidents can be arranged. God's no children are easy to kill. But natural disasters? Shahar. That would mean... Could a Scrivener do it? They knew the scripts for wind and rain and sunlight, but storms were demonishly hard to control. Too easy to trigger a tsunami when trying for a flash flood. But the alternative? No. No. She smiled, following my worst thoughts. Yes, it could mean that a god has been working to kill us for the past fifty years or more. I leapt to my feet, beginning to pace. My mortal skin suddenly felt constricting, choking. I wanted to shed it. If I wanted to kill the Aramary, I would do it, I snapped. I would fill this place with soap bubbles and bury you in bath toys. I would put spiked holes in the floors and cover them in rugs. I would will every Aramary under twelve to just fall down and die. I can do it, too. I rounded on her, daring her to challenge me. But Shahar was still nodding, wearily, her smile gone. I know, Sia. Her capitulation bothered me. I was not used to seeing her despair. I was not used to regarding any Aramary as helpless or vulnerable, let alone all of them. Ganey forbade any of us to retaliate against the Aramary, I said softly. She didn't care about you. She hates you as much as the rest of us do. But she didn't want war everywhere, and... The Aramary, foul as they were, had been the best hope for keeping the world from collapsing into chaos. Even Nahadoth had gone along with Yaini, and none of my siblings would defy her. Would they? I turned away, going to the window so that Shahar would not see my fear. She sighed and got to her feet. I've got to go. We're leaving early so as to fool any potential assassins. She paused noticing my stillness at last. Sia? Go on, I said softly. Beyond the window, the sun had begun to set, scattering a crimson spectrum across the sky. Did he Tempest feel the end of day, wherever he was, the way Nahadoth had once died with every dawn? Did some part of him quail and gibber into silence? Or did he fade slowly, like the bands of color in the sky? until his soul went dark? At my silence, Shahar headed for the door, and I roused myself enough to think. Shahar? I heard her stop. If something happens, if you're in danger, call me. We never tested that. It will work. I felt that instinctively. I didn't know how I knew, but I did. I don't care if most of the Aramary die, it's true, but you are my friend. She went still behind me, surprised, touched. Once upon a time, I would have been able to taste her emotions on the air. Now I could only guess. Get some rest, she said at last. I'll have food sent up. We'll speak again when I return. Then she left. And I leaned back against the window, trembling now that she was gone, left alone to ponder the most terrible of possibilities.
a godling defying a god. It seemed impossible. We were such low things compared to them. They could kill us so easily. Yet we were not powerless. Some among us, myself, once upon a time, were strong enough to challenge them directly, at least for a few moments. And even the least of us could keep secrets and stir up trouble. One godling's mischief did not trouble me. But if many of us were involved, conspiring across mortal generations, implementing some complex plan, it was no longer mischief. It was a revolt. One far more dangerous than whatever the northerners planned for the Aramary. Because if the godlings revolted against the gods, the gods would fight back, as they had done when threatened by the demons long ago. But godlings were not as fragile as demons, and many of us had no vested interest in keeping the mortal realm safe. That would mean a second god's war, worse than the first one. This had been brewing right under my nose for fifty years, and I hadn't had a clue. Beyond me, in silent rebuke, the bloody sky went gradually black. 7. How many miles to Babylon? Three score and ten? Can I get there by candlelight? Aye, and back again. If your feet are nimble and light, you'll get there by candlelight. I needed help, but not from Nahadoth or Yeni. I dared not chance their tempers, not until I knew more. Who could I trust among my siblings? Jacarn, of course, but she was never subtle and would be no help in uncovering a conspiracy. The rest, hells. Most of them I had not spoken to in 2,000 years. Before that, I had tried to kill some of them. Bridges burned, ashes scattered ground strewn with salt. And there was the small problem of my inability to return to the god's realm in my current state. That was less of a problem than it seemed, because fortunately, the city beneath sky was teeming with my youngest siblings, those for whom the novelty of the mortal realm had not yet worn off. If I could convince one of them to help me, but which one? I turned from the window, frustrated to pace. The walls of sky had begun to glow again, and I hated them, for they were more proof of my impotence. Once upon a time, they would have dimmed just a bit in my presence. I was no Nahadoth, but there was more than a little of his darkness in me. Now, as if to mock me, the wall stayed bright, diffusing every shadow. Shadow. I stopped. There was one of my siblings, just maybe, who would help me. Not because she liked me, quite the opposite. But secrets were her nature, and that was something we shared. It was always easier to relate to those of my siblings with whom I had something in common. If I appealed to that, would she listen, or would she kill me? No reward without risk, I murmured to myself, and headed for the apartment door. I took the lift down to the penultimate level of the underpalace. The corridors here were as quiet as always, and dim, compared to the brighter glow of all the other levels. Yes, this was the place. For nostalgia's sake, I touched each door as I passed it, remembering. Here were my sister's rooms, jacarns with cannon shot embedded in the floor, and the walls hung with shields, her hammock of blood-soaked slings and whips, 
very comfortable, I knew from experience, though a little scratchy. Dear traitor Karues, with pearls and coins scattered over nearly every surface, and books stolen from the library stacked atop the rest, the coins would be tarnishing now. I avoided my own quarters, for fear of how they would make me feel. How long before I ended up living there again? I steered my thoughts off this path with a heavy hand. This left the fourth chamber, at the center of the level, the one that had been Nahadoth's. It was pitch black within, but I could still see a little in the dark, even without Cat's eyes. The chamber was completely empty, no furnishings, no decorations, no hint that the room had ever been used. Yet every inch of its structure screamed defiance of our one-time jailers. The permanently lightless walls. The ceiling, which dipped toward the center of the room, the floor rose in the same spot, as if some terrible force had sucked the very stone toward itself. The sharp corners, which no other room in sky had. If I stared hard enough into the dark, I could almost see Nahadoth's silhouette etched against it, and hear his soft, deep voice. Have you come for another story, greedy child? It had been cruel of me to push him away. I would pray an apology to him after this. Reaching into my shirt, I pulled up the necklace of my own woven hair. Tugging N off the cord, I willed it to hover in the space between the floor and ceiling extrusions. To my relief, this worked. N stayed in the air and began turning at once, happily. This reminded it of the orrery, though it was lonely without planets. Sorry, I said, reaching out to stroke its smooth surface with a fingertip. I'll give you more planets someday. In the meantime, will you give me light? In answer, N flared bright yellow-white for me, a gleeful candle. Suddenly, Nahadoth's chamber became smaller, stark with shadows. My own loomed behind me, a big-headed apparition that seemed to taunt me with the shape of the child I should have been. I ignored it and focused on the task at hand. Lady of Secrets, I said. Extending a hand, my shadow did the same, shaping my fingers just so. I made the profile of a face on the wall and spoke with it. Shadow in the dark. Nemer drew M. My sister, do you hear me? There was a pause. Then, though I did not move, my hand shadow cocked its head. Well, this is unexpected, it said in a woman's voice. Big brother Sia, it's been some time. I added my other hand, working the shadow into the shape of a donkey's head. I've been an ass. I hear interesting things about you, Nemer. Will you speak with me? I answered, didn't I? The first shadow shifted, impossibly manifesting its own arms and hands, the latter of which were set on its hips. Though, I'll admit that's because I've heard some very interesting things about you, too. I'm dying to know if they're true. Damn, I might have known. I'll tell you every juicy detail, but I want something in return. Do you now? I tensed at the wariness in her tone. That she did not trust me was irrelevant. She trusted no one. She did not like me, though, which was another matter entirely. 
I'm not certain I'm interested in making any bargains with you, Trickster. I nodded. No more than I had expected. I mean no harm to you, Nemmer. Cross my heart and hope to die. I heard the bitterness in my own voice and angled my fingers into the shape of an old man's head. You did not turn on us in the war. I bear no grudge toward you. That I do not believe, she said, folding her arms. Everyone knows you hate the ones who stood by doing nothing as much as the ones who fought for a tempest. Hate is a strong word. Her silhouette tossed its head in the universal gesture of rolled eyes. Resent us then. Yearn to kill us. Is that more accurate? I stopped and dropped my hands with a sigh. The talking shadows remained. You know my nature, sister. What do you want from me? Maturity? I wanted to laugh, but I was too soul-weary. Fine, I'll say it. I hate you, and I wouldn't have contacted you if I had a choice, and we both know it. Now will you speak with me, or should we just tell each other to go to the infinite hells and leave it at that? She was silent for a moment. I had time enough to worry. Who could I contact if she refused to help me? The other choices were worse. What if... All right, she said at last. And the knot that had been tightening in my belly loosened. I need time to set things up. Come here a week from today. Noon. The location made itself present in my consciousness, as if I had always known it. A house, somewhere in the city below Sky, South Route. Come alone. I folded my arms. Will you be alone? Oh, of course. I made the shape of a cat's head with my hands, ears back, teeth bared. She laughed. I don't care if you believe me. You asked for this meeting, not I. Be there in a week, or not at all. With that, her shadow leaned down and blew hard. With a surprised flare, N went dark and dropped to the floor. Then Nemmer was gone. In the dark, I retrieved N, who was quite put out. I murmured soothing words and tucked it back into my shirt, all the while thinking. If Nemmer knew what had happened to me, and it was her nature to know such things. Not even the three could keep her out of their business, though she wasn't foolish enough to flaunt that. Then when I arrived in a week, I might find her and a group of my least favorite siblings, some of whom had been waiting for a chance to repay me for the God's War for 2,000 years. But Nimmer had never been one to play the games of our family. I didn't know why she'd set out the war. Had she been torn, like so many of our siblings, between our fathers? Had she been one of those working to save the mortal realm, which had nearly been destroyed by our battling? I sighed in frustration, realizing that this was the sort of thing I should have occupied myself with as eldest, not our parents' sordid dramas. If I bothered to reconcile with my siblings, perhaps tried to understand their reasons for betraying Nahadoth, if I had done that, I would not be who I am. I sighed into the dark. Which ultimately was why I would risk trusting Nemmer. She, too, was only what her nature made her. She kept her own counsel, gathering secrets and doling out knowledge where she deemed best and making alliances only as it suited her. Briefly, if at all. If nothing else, 
That meant she was not my enemy. Whether she became my friend would be up to me. On returning to Deka's room, I was surprised to find that I had visitors again. Morad, the ample-haired palace steward, and another servant, who was busy making the bed and tidying up. Both bowed to me at once, as they would to any Aramary highblood. Then the servant promptly resumed his cleaning duties, while Morad looked me up and down with an expression of unconcealed distaste. Frowning at her scrutiny, I looked at myself, and then, belatedly, realized why the servants had all stared at me on my way to the underpalace. I still wore the clothing I had conjured for myself two days before. It had been nondescript then, but it was filthy now, after all my scrabbling through dusty corridors and tree-choked dead spaces. And I sniffed one of my armpits and wrinkled my nose, appalled that I had not noticed. I had not bathed since my return to this world, and apparently my adolescent body had a greater capacity for generating reek than I had done as a child. Oh, I said, smiling sheepishly at Morad. She sighed, though I thought I saw a hint of amusement on her face. I'll run you a bath, she said, and paused, looking particularly at my head. And summon a stylist, and the tailor, and a manicurist. I touched my stringy, gritty hair with a weak laugh. I suppose I deserve that. As you like, my lord. Morad touched the servant, who had almost finished the bed and murmured something. He nodded and exited the apartment at once. To my surprise, Morad then rolled up her sleeves and finished tucking the sheets. When that was done, she went into the bathroom. A moment later, I heard water run. Curious, I followed her into the room and watched while she sat on the tub's edge, testing the water with her fingers. It was even more noticeable with her back turned and all that hair of hers visible in full riot. It was clear that she was not fully Amun. Her hair had the kind of tight, small coils that wealthy Amun spent hours and fortunes to achieve. And it was as black as my father's soul. Her skin was pale enough, but the marks of other were in her features, plain to anyone who looked. It was also plain that she was not ashamed of her mixed blood. She sat as straight and graceful as a queen. She could not have been raised in Sky or any Amun territory. They would have beaten her spirit down with cruel words long before now. Marine, I guessed. You must have gotten the hair from them at least. The rest, Temin maybe? Uthre? A bit of kin? Morad turned to me, lifting one elegant eyebrow. Two of my grandparents were part Marine, yes. One was Temin, another Men. And there were rumors that my father was actually a half-talk who pretended to be Semite, to get into the Hunthal legions. My mother was Amun. More proof of the Aramary's desperation. In the old days, they would have barely acknowledged a woman with such jumbled bloodlines, let alone make her a steward. Then how? She smiled wryly, as if she got such rude questions all the time. I grew up in southern Senem. When I came of age, I petitioned to come here on the strength of my fourth grandparent, an Aramary high blood. At my grimace, she nodded. It was an old story. Grandmama Atri never knew my grandfather's name. He was passing through town on a journey. Her family had no powerful friends, and she was a pretty girl. She shrugged, though her smile had faded. 
So you decided to come find Grandpapa the rapist and say hello? He died years ago. She checked the water once more and stopped the taps. It was Grandmama's idea that I come here, actually. There's not much work in that part of Senem, and if nothing else, her suffering could bring me a better life. She rose and went to stand pointedly beside the washing area's bench, picking up the flask that held shampoo. I got up and undressed, pleased that my nudity didn't seem to bother her. When I sat down, before I could warn her, she lifted the cord that held N from around my neck and set it on a counter. I was relieved that N tolerated this without protest. It must have been tired after its earlier exertion. Plus, it had always had odd taste in mortals. You didn't have to come here for a better life, I said, yawning as she wet my hair and began washing it. Sending the message to Nemer had left me tired, too. And Marad's fingers were skillful and soothing. There must have been a thousand other places in the world where you could have made a living, and where you wouldn't have had to deal with this family's madness. There were no other places that paid as much, she said. I swung around to stare at her. They pay you? She nodded, amused at my reaction, and gently pushed my head back into place so that she could resume work. Yes, old Lord Tavril's doing, actually. As a quarter blood, I can retire in five more years with enough money to take care of my whole family for the rest of my life. I'd say that's worth dabbling in madness, wouldn't you? I frowned, trying to understand. They are your family, I said. The ones you left behind in the South. The Aramari are just employers to you? Her hands paused. Well, I've been here 15 years at this point. It's home now. Some aspects of life in Sky aren't so terrible, Lord Sia. I suspect you know that. And, well, there are people I love here, too. I knew then. She resumed work in silence, pouring warm water over me, and then lathering again. And when she leaned past me to pick up the flask of shampoo, I got a good mouthful of her scent. Daystone and paper and patience. The sense of efficient bureaucracy. And one thing more. A complex scent, layered, familiar, with each element supporting and enriching the other. Dreams, pragmatism, discretion, love, remeth. It was my nature to use the keys to a mortal soul whenever they fell into my hands. If I had still been myself, the child or the cat, I would have found some way to torment Morad with my knowledge. I might even have made a song of it and sung it everywhere until even her friends found themselves humming the tune. The refrain would have been, See wow, you silly cow, how dare you lose your heart. But though I would always be the child, and the child was a bully, I could not bring myself to do this to her. I was going soft, I supposed, or growing up, so I kept silent. Presently, Morad finished with my hair, whereupon she handed me a soapy sponge and stepped back, plainly unwilling to wash the rest of my body. She had wrapped my hair in a damp towel that was tied like a beehive atop my head, which made me giggle when I finished and stood and caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror. Then my eyes drifted down. I saw the rest of me and fell silent. It was the same body I had shaped for myself countless times, sometimes deliberately sometimes in helpless response to moments of weakness. Short for my age, I would grow another two or three inches, but would never be tall by Amun standards. Thinner than I usually made myself, 
perhaps from years of not eating, while I gradually became mortal within Nahadoth. Long-limbed. Beneath my brown skin, there were bones poking out at every juncture, like blemishes. The muscles that lined them were attenuated and not very strong. I leaned closer to the mirror, peering at the lines of my face critically. Not very attractive either, though I knew that would improve. Too disproportionate for now. Too tired-eyed. Shahar was much prettier. And yet she had kissed me, hadn't she? I traced the outline of my lips with a finger, remembering the feel of her mouth. What had she thought of mine on hers? Murad cleared her throat. Did Shahar ever think of... The water will get cold, Murad said gently. I blinked, blushing, and was abruptly glad I hadn't made fun of her. I got into the tub, and Murad exited the bathroom to go speak with the tailor, who'd just arrived and announced himself. When I emerged in a fluffy robe, I looked ridiculous. The tailor measured me, murmuring to himself that I would need looser clothing to conceal my thinness. Then came the manicurist and the shoemaker, and one or two others whom Murad had somehow summoned, though I hadn't seen her use magic. By the time it was done, I was exhausted, which Murad thankfully noticed. She dismissed all the craft servants and turned to head for the door herself. Belatedly, it occurred to me that she'd been unbelievably helpful. Who knew how many duties she had as steward, and how many of those had she neglected to see to my comfort? Thank you, I blurted as she opened the door. She paused and looked back at me in surprise, then smiled in such a genuine, generous way that I suddenly knew what Remeth saw in her. Then she was gone. I sat down to eat the meal the servants had left. Afterward, I sprawled naked across Deka's bed, for once looking forward to sleep, so that I could perhaps dream of love and forget. I stood upon a plane like a vast glass mirror. Mirrors again. I had seen them in Nahadoth's realm, too. Perhaps there was meaning in this? I would ponder it some other time. Above me arced the vault of the heavens, an endlessly turning cylinder of clouds and sky, vast and limitless, and yet somehow enclosed. Clouds drifted across it from left to right, although the light, from no source I could ascertain, shifted in the opposite direction, waxing light and waning dark in a slow and steady gradient. The God's realm, or dream manifestation of it, it was an approximation, of course, all my mortal mind could comprehend. Before me, rising from the plain, a palace lay impossibly on its side. It was silver and black, built in no recognizable mortal architectural style, and yet suggesting all of them a thing of lines and shadow, without dimension or definition. An impression, not reality. Below, instead of a reflection, its opposite shone in the mirror. White and gold, more realistic but less imaginative, the same yet different. There was meaning in this too, but it was obvious. The black palace ascendant, the white palace nothing but an image the silvery plane reflecting, balancing, and separating both. I sighed, annoyed. Had I already become as tiresomely literal as most mortals? How humiliating. Are you afraid? Asked a voice behind me. I started and began to turn. No, the speaker snapped. 
And such was the force of his command, commanding reality, commanding my flesh, that I froze. Now I was afraid. Who are you? I asked. I didn't recognize his voice, but that meant nothing. I had dozens of brothers, and they could take any shape they chose, especially in this realm. Why does that matter? Because I want to know, duh. Why? I frowned. What kind of question is that? We're family. I want to know which one of my brothers is trying to scare the hells out of me. And succeeding, though I would never admit such a thing. I'm not one of your brothers. At this, I frowned in confusion. Only gods could enter the gods' realm. Was he lying? Or was I simply too mortal to understand what he really meant? Should I kill you? The stranger asked. He was young, I decided, though such judgments meant little in the grand scale of things. He was oddly soft-spoken, too. His voice mild, even as he delivered these peculiar, not-quite threats. Was he angry? I thought so, but couldn't be sure. His tone was all flat emotionlessness, edged in cold. I don't know. Should you? I retorted. I've been contemplating the matter for most of my life. Ah, I said. I suppose you and I must have gotten off on the wrong foot from the beginning then. That happened sometimes. I tried to be a good elder brother for a long time, visiting each of my younger siblings as they were born and helping them through those first difficult centuries. Some of them I was still friends with. Some of them I'd loathe the instant I'd laid eyes on them, and vice versa. From the very beginning? Yes. I sighed, slipping my hands into my pockets. Must be a difficult decision then, or you'd have done it already. Whatever I did to make you angry, either it can't have been all that bad, or it's unforgivable. Oh? I shrugged. If it was really bad, you wouldn't be waffling about whether to kill me. If it was unforgivable, you'd be too angry for revenge to make any difference. There'd be no point in killing me. So, which is it? There's a third option, he said. It was unforgivable, but there is a point in killing you. Interesting. In spite of my unease, I grinned at the conundrum. And that point is? I don't simply want vengeance. I require and embody and evolve through it. I blinked, sobering. Because if vengeance was his nature, then that was another matter entirely. But I did not remember a sibling who was god of vengeance. What have I done to earn your wrath? I asked, troubled now. And why are you even asking the question? You have to serve your nature. Are you offering to die for me? No, demons take you. If you try to kill me, I'll try to kill you back. Suicide isn't my nature but I want to understand this. He sighed and shifted, the movement drawing my eye toward the mirror below our feet. It didn't help much. The angle of the reflection was such that I could see little beyond feet and legs and a hint of elbow. His hands were in his pockets, too. What you have done is unforgivable, he said, and yet I must forgive it, because you did not know. I frowned, confused, what does my knowledge have to do with anything? Harm committed unknowingly is still harm. True. But if you had known, Sia, 
I'm not certain you would have done it. At his use of my name, I grew more confused, because his tone had changed. For an instant, the coldness had broken, and I heard stranger things underneath. Sorrow. Wistfulness? Perhaps a hint of affection. But I did not know this god. I was certain of it. Irrelevant, I said, finally turning my head as much as I could. Beyond a certain point, my neck simply would not bend. It was like trying to turn with two pillows braced on either side of my head. Pillows formed of nothing but solid, unyielding will. I tried to relax. You can't base decisions on hypotheticals. It doesn't matter what I would have done. You know only what I did. I paused meaningfully. Perhaps you could tell me. For once, I wasn't in the mood for games. Unfortunately, my companion was. You chose to serve your nature, he said, ignoring my hint. Why? I wished I could look at him. Sometimes a look is more eloquent than any words. Why? What the hells? Are you kidding? You are the oldest of us, and must pretend to be the youngest. I don't pretend anything. I am what I must be, and I'm damn good at it, thanks. So we are weaker than the mortals, then. His voice grew soft, almost sad. Slaves to fate, never to be freed. Shut the hells up, I snapped. You don't know slavery if you think this is the same thing. Isn't it? Having no choice? You have a choice. I lifted my gaze to the shifting firmament above. The gradient, night to day, day to night, did not change at a constant rate. Only mortals thought of the sky as a reliable, predictable thing. We gods had to live with Nahadoth any tempest. We knew better. You can accept yourself, take control of your nature, make it what you want it to be. Just because you're the god of vengeance doesn't mean you have to be some brooding cliché, forever cackling to yourself and totting up what you owe to whom. Choose how your nature shapes you. Embrace it, find the strength in it, or fight yourself and remain forever incomplete. My companion fell silent, perhaps digesting my advice. That was good, because it was clear that I'd done him a disservice, besides whatever wrong he felt I'd committed. I did not remember him. That meant I hadn't bothered to find him, guide him after his birth. And he needed such guidance, because it was painfully clear that he did not like the hand fate or the maelstrom had dealt him. I didn't blame him for that. I wouldn't have wanted to be god of vengeance either. But he was, and he was going to have to find a way to live with that. In the mirror, I saw the man behind me step closer, raising a hand. I braced myself to fight purely on principle, since I already knew there was nothing I could do. It was clear his power superseded what little god magic I had left, or I would have been able to break his compulsion and turn around. But his hand touched my hair to my utter shock, lingered there a moment, as if memorizing the texture. Then fingers grazed the back of my neck, and I jumped. Was this some kind of threat? But he made no attempt to harm me. His finger traced the knots of spine along the back of my neck, stopping only when my clothing interfered. Then, reluctantly, I thought, his hand pulled away. Thank you, he said at last. That was something I needed to hear. Sorry I didn't say it sooner, 
I paused. So are you going to kill me now? Soon. Ah, good vengeance takes time. Yes. The coldness had returned to his voice, and this time I recognized it for what it was. Not anger, resolve. I sighed. Sorry, too, to hear that. I think I might have liked you. Yes, and I you. There was that, at least. Well, don't dither too long about it. I've only got a few decades left. I thought he smiled, which I counted as a victory. I have already begun. Good for you. I hoped he didn't think I was mocking him. It always made me feel good to see the young ones do well, even if that meant they would inevitably threaten me. That was the way of things, after all. Children had to grow up. They did not always become what others wanted. Do me a favor, though. He said nothing, in keeping with his newfound resolve. That was all right. I could be his enemy, if that was what he needed from me. I just didn't see any point in being an ass about it. I don't belong here anymore. I gestured around us at the mirrored plain, the palaces, the sky. Not even in this watered-down dream of reality. Wake me up, will you? All right. And suddenly a hand ripped through me from behind. I cried out in surprise and agony, looking down to see my mortal heart clenched in a sharp-nailed hand. I jerked awake to the sound of my own cry, echoing from the vaulted ceiling. Glowing, vaulted ceiling. It was night. Above me loomed Shahar, who had a hand on my chest and a worried look on her face. I was still sleepy, disoriented. A quick check of my chest verified that my heart was still there. Inadvertently, I looked at Shahar's chest, thinking muzzily that my dream enemy might have tried to harm her too. Her dress lay in cut strips down to her waist, half undone, and she held a loose sleep shift over her breasts with her free arm, which she must have grabbed to cover herself when she'd come into my room. This did nothing to hide the other beautiful parts of her. The gentle sweep of neck into shoulder, the slight curve of her waist, of her breasts, I could still see one rounded shadow near her elbow. I reached up to pull her arm out of the way, and stopped with my fingers two inches from her arm. It took her a moment to realize. She stared at my reaching hand uncomprehendingly. Then her eyes widened and she jerked away. I lowered my hand. Sorry, I muttered. She glared at me. You started screaming so loud I could hear you through the adjoining door. I thought something was wrong with you. A dream. Not a pleasant one, obviously. Actually, it wasn't so bad till the end. The fear was fading quickly. My dream companion hadn't been gentle about it, but he'd chosen an excellent way to send me back to the mortal realm. I felt none of the heart-rending sorrow that I might have on realizing that the god's realm was now forbidden to me. Instead, I was just annoyed. Little mortal fucking bastard. If I ever get my magic back, I'm going to break every bone in whatever body he manifests. Let him avenge that. I paused then, because Shahar was looking at me oddly. What in every god's name are you talking about? Nothing. I'm babbling. I yawned, my jaw cracking with the effort. Sleep makes me stupid. Never liked it. Mortal fuck, she said, looking thoughtful.
Is that? She paused, grimacing, too refined to say the word beyond repeating my term. Being with a mortal. Is it such an anathema among gods that you use it as a curse? I blushed, though it bothered me that I did. I had nothing to be ashamed of. Pushing myself up on my elbows, I said, No, it's not anathema at all. Far from it. What then? I tried to seem nonchalant. It's just that mortals are dangerous to love. They break easily. In time, they die. It hurts. I shrugged. It's easier, safer, to just use them for pleasure. But that's hard, too, because it's impossible for us to take pleasure without giving back something of ourselves. We are not... I groped for the words in Sinmite. We do not... It isn't our way. No, it isn't natural to do things that way. To be nothing but body, contained only within ourselves. So when we are with one another, we reach out, and the mortal gets inside us. We cannot help it. And then it hurts to push them out, too. I trailed off, because Shahar was staring at me. I'd been talking faster and faster, the words tumbling together in my effort to convey how it felt. I sighed and forced myself back to human speed. Being with mortals isn't anathema, but it's not good, either. It never ends well. Any god with sense avoids it. I see. I wasn't sure I believed that, but she sighed. Well, give me a moment. She stepped back into her room, not shutting the door, and I heard her wrestle with the cloth of her dress for a few moments. Then she returned, wearing the sleep shift instead of holding it in front of herself this time. By this point, I had set up rubbing my face to try and banish the dregs of sleep and the memory of my bloody, torn-out heart. When Shahar sat down on the bed, she did so gingerly, at its edge, out of my arm's reach. I didn't blame her for that, or the fact that she seemed more relaxed after my speech about avoiding sex. Still, there was something odd about her manner, something I couldn't put my finger on. She seemed jittery, tense. I wondered why she hadn't just stayed in her room and gone to bed, once she had seen that I wasn't dying. How did your meeting with, uh... I waved a hand vaguely, some noble. She chuckled. It went well, though that depends on your definition of well. She sobered, her eyes darkening with a hint of her earlier anger. You'll be pleased to know that I did not follow through on my plan to challenge the resistance, per your advice. The message I sent instead, I hope if I'm right about Lady Hino, was that I would like to negotiate. Find out more about their demands and determine whether there's some way that we might meet them. Without throwing the world into chaos, that is. She glanced at me warily. I'm impressed, I said truthfully, and surprised. Negotiation, compromise, is usually anathema to attempts. And you changed your mind because of me? I laughed a little. There were some good things about being older. People listened to me more. Shahar sighed, looking away. We'll see what happens when my mother hears of it. She already thinks I'm weak. After this, I may not be heir for much longer. With a heavy sigh, she lay back on the bed stretching out her arms over her head. I could not help myself. 
my eyes settled on the very noticeable contrast of her areoli under the sheer shift. They were surprisingly dark given her pale coloring. Perfect brown circles with soft little cylinders at their centers. Useless, stupid, animal, mortaling body. My penis had reacted before I could stop it, jabbing me in the belly and forcing me to sit up from my usual slouch. It hurt, and I felt hot all over, as if I'd come down sick. I had. It was called adolescence, an evil, evil disease. But it was not just her flesh that drew me. I could barely see it with my withering senses, but her soul gleamed and whispered like rubbed silk. We have always been vulnerable to true beauty. I dragged my eyes away from her breast to find her watching me. Watching me watch her? I did not know, but the hunger in me sharpened at the unalarmed, contemplative look in her eyes. I fought the reaction back, but it was difficult. Another symptom of the disease. Don't be stupid, I said, focusing on mundanities. It takes great strength to compromise, Shahar, more than it does to threaten and destroy, since you must fight your own pride as well as the enemy. You Aramari have never understood this, and you didn't have to when you had us at your beck and call. Now perhaps you can learn to be true rulers and not merely bullies. She rolled onto her belly, which brought her to lie between my legs, propped on her elbows. At this I frowned, growing suspicious and then wondering at my own unease. She was just a girl testing the waters of womanhood, an older version of, I'll show you mine if you show me yours. She wanted to know if I found her desirable. Did I not owe her the courtesy of an honest response? I lowered my knees and sat back on my elbows so that she could see the evidence of my admiration in the tinted sheet and the heat of my gaze. She immediately blushed, averting her eyes. Then she looked at me again, and away again, and eventually looked down at her folded arms, which were fidgeting on the covers. I think mother wants me to marry Kenru, she said. Her words had an air of effort. The Tim and Air I told you about? I think that's why she's let me be friends with him. She's never let anyone else close to me. I shrugged. So marry him. She glared at me, forgetting her prudishness. I don't want to. Then don't. Shahar, for the gods' sakes. You're the heir of Mary heir. Do what you damn well please. I can't. If mother wants this. She bit her lower lip and looked away. We have never sold our sons or daughters into marriage before now, Sia. We didn't have to because we didn't have anything to gain. We didn't need alliances or money or land. But now, I think, I think mother understands that the Timmons might prove pivotal. Given High North's increasing restlessness, I think that's why she's letting me handle things with Lady Hino. She's putting me on display. All at once, she looked up at me and there was such ferocity in her expression that it struck me like a blow. Why? I want to succeed, Mother Sia, she said. I want to be head after her, not just because I want power. I know the evil our family has done to you and to the world, but we've done good, too, great good, and I want that to be our legacy. I will do whatever it takes to achieve that. I stared at her, taken aback and mourning because what she wanted was impossible. 
her childhood promise, to be both a good person and an Aramary, to use her family's power to make the world better. It was naivete of the highest order. I had seen others like her, a few, one every handful of generations with any Tempest's chosen family. They were always the brightest lights, the most glorious souls of the whole grimy bunch, the ones I could not hate because they were special. But it never lasted once they gained power. They streaked through life like falling stars across the heavens, brilliant but ephemeral. The power killed the glory, dulled the specialness into despair. It hurt so much to watch their hopes die. I could say nothing. To let her see my sorrow would start the process early. So I sighed and turned onto my side, pretending boredom when in fact I was trying hard not to cry. Her frustration flared like a struck match. She got up on her hands and knees and crawled over to me, bracing her arms on either side of my body so she could glare into my face. Help me, damn you. You're supposed to be my friend. I stifled a yawn. What do you want me to do? Tell you to marry a man you don't love? Tell you not to marry him? This isn't a bedtime tale, Shahar. People marry people they don't love all the time. And it isn't always terrible. He's already your friend. You could do worse. And if it's something your mother wants, you don't have a choice anyway. Her hand, braced on the covers in front of me, trembled. My senses throbbed with the waver of her conflicting yearnings. The child in her wanted to do as she pleased, cling to impossible hopes. The woman in her wanted to make sound decisions, succeed even if it meant sacrifice. The woman would win. That was inevitable, but the child would not go quietly. With that same trembling hand, she touched my shoulder, pushing until I twisted my torso to face her. Then she leaned down and kissed me. I permitted it, more out of curiosity than anything else. It was clumsy this time and did not last long. She was off the center of my mouth, covering mostly the bottom lip. I did not share myself with her, and she sat up, frowning. Does that make you feel better? I asked. I honestly wanted to know. Shahar's expression crumpled. She turned away and lay down behind me, her back to mine. I felt her fighting tears. Troubled and worried that I had somehow harmed her, I turned to her and sat up. What is it that you want? My mother to love me, my brother back, the world not to hate us. Everything. I considered this. Shall I fetch him for you? Deka? She tensed, turning over. Could you do that? I don't know. I could not change my shape anymore. Traveling across distances was not so very different, save that it involved changing the shape of reality to make the world smaller. If I could not do one, I might not be able to do the other. As I watched, however, the eagerness faded from her expression. No. Deka may not love me anymore. I blinked in surprise. Of course he does. Don't patronize me, Sia. I'm not, I snapped. I can feel the bond between us, Shahar, as clear as this. I took a curl of her hair in my fingers and pulled on it, gentle but steady. She made a sound of surprise and I let the curl go. It bounced back prettily. You both pull at me and at each other. Neither of you likes me very much now, but otherwise, nothing has changed between the two of you since those days in the Under Palace, 
years ago. You still love him, and he still loves you just as much. I'm a god, all right? I know. I was not strictly telling the truth. It was true that Shahar's feelings toward me had waned, though they grew stronger with every hour I spent in her presence. Dacus, however, had grown stronger too, even with no contact between us for half his lifetime. I didn't quite know how to interpret that, so I didn't mention it. Her eyes went wide at my words, and then welled with tears. She made a quick, abortive sound. Bah! As soon as she uttered it, she clapped a hand to her mouth, but her hand was trembling. I sighed and pulled her against me, her face against my chest. It was only when I did this, only when she felt safe from eyes that might look upon her humanity and judge it a weakness, that she let herself break into deep, racking sobs so loud that they echoed from the walls of the apartment. Her tears were hot, though they cooled rapidly on my skin and as they pattered onto the sheets. Her shoulders heaved against my arms, and as the sobs grew worse, her arms went hard around me, squeezing me as if her life depended on my solidity and stillness. So I gave her both, stroking her hair and murmuring soothing things in the language of creation letting her know that I loved her too. For I did, fool that I was. When her tears finally stopped, I kept stroking her, liking the way her curls went flat and sprang up again as my hand passed, and thinking of nothing. I barely noticed when her arms loosened, her hands coming to stroke my sides and back and hip. I kept thinking of nothing when she eased my shirt up and laid the lightest of kisses on my belly. It tickled. I smiled. Then she sat up to look at me, her eyes red-rimmed but dry, a peculiar intent in her eyes. When she kissed me this time, it was wholly different. She nudged my lips apart and touched my tongue with her own, sweet and wet and sour. When I did not react, she slid her hands under my shirt, exploring the flat strangeness of a body that was not her own. I liked this, until one of her hands went farther down, her fingers tickling hair and cloth at the edge of my pants. And then I caught her wrist. No, I said. She closed her eyes, and I felt her aching emptiness. It was not lust. Missing her brother had made her feel alone. I love you, she said. Not even an admission, this. It was simply a statement of fact, like, the moon is pretty, or... You're going to die. I've always loved you. Since we were children, I tried not to. I nodded, stroking her hand. I know. I want to choose. If I have to sell myself for power, I want to give myself first. For love. For a friend. I sighed, closing my eyes. Shahar, I told you it's not good. She scowled and lunged forward and kissed me again. I was stunned, silent, the objection dying in my throat. Because this time it was like kissing a god. The quintessence of her came through the opening of my lips and drove itself into my soul before I could stop it. I gasped and inhaled a white, shivering sun that pulsed strong and weak but never went out and never blew up. A rocky determination, jumbled but sharp-edged with the potential to become as solid as bedrock. When I opened my eyes, I was lying back and she was above me. 
still kissing me, her hands coaxing sighs from me despite my reluctance. I did not stop her because I am supposed to be a child, but really, I am not, and my body was too old to provide me with a child's defenses against reality. Children do not think about how magnificent it would be to become one with another person. They do not yearn to lose themselves in force and sensation and panting. Children think about consequences, if only to try and avoid them. It takes an adult to abandon such thoughts entirely. So when her hand slipped into my pants this time, I did not stop her. And I did not protest while she explored me. First with her fingers, and then, oh gods, oh yes, her mouth. Her mortal husband could have the rest, but I would marry her mouth and fingertips. I murmured without thinking, and the walls went dark because there was mischief in what we were doing, and that gave me strength. Despite this, I lay there helpless in the dark as she learned to make me whimper. She tormented me with this, tasting every part of my body. She even licked in, where it lay on my chest, greedy thing. It rolled so that she might try its other side, too, but she didn't notice. I touched her, too. She liked that lots. Then she straddled me. There came a moment of lucidity in which I caught her hips and looked up at her and said, Are you sure? But she pushed herself down, and I cried out because it was so wonderful that it hurt. Flesh is not at all a terrible thing. I had forgotten that it could feel good and not just grotesque. It was so nice not to be used. She felt the same as a goddess inside. I whispered this to her, and she smiled, rising and falling above me her mouth open and teeth reflecting the moon, her hair a pale moving shadow. Then we shifted and I was on her, not out of any paltry mortal need on my part to dominate, but simply because I liked the sweet mewling sounds she made as I angled my way into her, and also because I was still a god, and even a weak god is dangerous to mortals. Matter is such tenuous stuff. So I controlled myself by focusing on her flesh, on her hand stroking my back. Inadvertently, I purred. On my own clenching, tightening, quickening excitement. On carrying her only into the good parts of existence, and none of the bad ones. And when she could bear no more. When I knew it was safe to bring her back to herself. When I was sure I could stay corporeal. Only then did I let her go. And myself as well. She fainted. That is normal when one of us mates with a mortal. Only the very extraordinary can touch the divine without being overwhelmed by it. I fetched a damp towel from the bathroom and mopped up the sweat and saliva and so forth. Then tucked her against me under the covers, so that I could breathe the scent of her hair. I felt no regret, but I was sad. She was further from me now, and I was the one who had sent her away.